Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 131 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is naturally the Fiat Mia Fiori episode of the SLS Cast because the Mia Fiori small medium family car, which was produced from 1974 to 1984 by Fiat, was also known as the Fiat 1. 31. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, with that uh, wonderful bit of Fiat knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California, where he is the proud owner of the only e-marker left by Sony. It is, of course... It is I, Tim. Bum, bum, bum. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, the e-marker, Tim. Can you explain to me why your company made this product? I I cannot, but I'm sure you can. I I don't have the (laughs) literature in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the e-marker was this glorified clock radio thingy. Basically, it was a little pocket device. And essentially, it it really wasn't much more than a clock in disguise. You press a button when you hear a song on the radio that you like. And then you plugged it into your PC later, and it allowed you to see what was playing at the time the button was pressed. Hmm. Why? (laughs) Why? Why why would you company, bro? You. (laughs) Why would you need that? You you need to go to you need to go to your boss and ask him why did we make this? Why? Help me understand. (laughs) What was the retail price for this gadget? Uh, You know, I do not have a retail price information. I do, however, know uh, that it failed at retail and was eventually recalled. (laughs) It was recalled because they weren't selling enough, or was it recalled because it was actually a bomb? I. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It, yeah, it was, I guess, maybe like a, it was like Sony's version of the Virtual Boy. I don't know. So, yeah. Fun, fun, fun things from Sony. Well, I'm glad my company likes that uh, you, you bring out some of their darker moments into the light. Hey, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to keep it fun and fresh for telling people that you work for Sony. I know, I know. I, I appreciate it because I don't have to. <laughs> I get to sit here and listen to facts. Uh, at least I hope they're facts, because full disclosure, I do not double-check anything that comes out of Matt's mouth regarding Sony or any of his facts of the week, either. Well, I mean, I do actually... I don't just, like, make it up. I really do go and search out things about no, Sony. You don't, no, 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 don't say that. You're going to ruin like the illusion. People well, tune in because to... they think you are the almighty Matt... The mat of oh. all-knowing, the mat of wonder, the mat of knowledge. Well, I mean, I just want to make sure that in the event that someone from Sony should listen, that I, you know, they're not like, who the fuck is this guy making shit up about us? So, True. I don't I mean, want it to be. I don't want it to be like fifteen seconds of dead air followed by, and this is Tim. Yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen. Sony has redacted Matt due to a cease and desist order for making shit up about Sony. <laughs> So does redacting still transfer into audio? Like, can you black out audio? I would imagine so. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't. It would, I, I suppose it'd be one of those things where it either just cuts out 
like that, or you hear a, you're sitting there talking, and all of a sudden, whenever they mention the boop, Tony, you know, and you hear that like little beep over whenever they're supposed to be talking. Hmm. Have you ever had yeah. dreams that you were a cult leader? No. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. Is there such a thing as a good cult other than Christianity? Oh, I don't know. I think like the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts are pretty good cults overall. <laughs> right? I thought they were like a tribe. <laughs> no, apparently that's racist. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. So how was your week, sir? Uh, my week is good. Has been good. I uh, finally, with the pressure from my dentist, my oral hygienist. I prefer saying that than dentist because it sounds a little more saucy or saucier, I guess. My oral hygienist said that I uh, I should look into purchasing a vibrating electrical toothbrush because i believe that is actually how you're supposed to it's not an electric toothbrush it is a vibrating electrical toothbrush or even a vibrating electrical bristled rod even and Mm. i actually went and uh and purchased one i uh, amazon prime now has the same day delivery thing going and this morning i waltzed into work and i thought you know what purchase and i did so I'm very I'm looking forward to wanding my mouth. Hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do. I know, do you? Uh, I mean, are you into is, are, 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 are you basically like the 21st century version of Linda Lovelace and you found a clitoris in your mouth cuz that's kind of what you're It sounds more or less that's what you're alluding to with all of this vibrating bristling rod stuff. Well, when I got mouth. home and I took the box out and I picked it up, and I was pushing the one button it had, and it turns out it's already pre-charged when you get it, and it started like violently for, for your vibrating. pleasure, huh? <laughs> for your pleasure, exactly. And she thought the significant other thought that I, it was it was like a dual dildo pleasure rod for your oral needs and for the rectal needs. I guess I don't know. It's, <laughs> Oh my god! It's one. It has it has a it has an adapter. So while one person is using it in one way, adapter, you can use it the other. (laughs) Oh my god! (sighs) Episode title: (sighs) It has an adapter. It has an adapter. Oh man! I mean, they don't call it Oral B for nothing. I guess not. Man, uh, that's pretty well, fucking Well, are, are you into good oral hygiene, or do you just pretty have good. a plain old bristled to... toothbrush? A manual. Yeah, the old stick. 38 years, got the old uh, Colgate uh, oh, 360. That's what I have, the Colgate 360. It's uh, It's got the regular medium-strength bristles on there with the little tongue scraper thingy on the on the back side and then um yeah you just manual toothbrush good old floss listerine that's all in your toothbrush well i mean that that's that's the combo that i use is the um oral b glide because apparently despite my big ass mouth i have very tight spaces between my teeth so I can't use regular floss. I have to use the special glide floss. 
God, this is one sexy conversation we're having. Mm-hmm. Hey, at least at least people who listen know that you know we take care of your teeth. You know that that's that's good. I might not use mine for my teeth. I mean, I think we <laughs> we covered that ground. Yeah, I might want to uh, sit on it for a little while. Who knows? Indeed. <sighs> well, my week was far less exciting than 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 that. Um, it, I, I I got some lawn care equipment via UPS today. <clears throat> it was it was scheduled to come the 9th through the 11th uh, was the window I was quoted. And then thankfully I was home this afternoon um because it showed up a day early. So I got my Ego lawnmower. The Ego lawnmower. Yes. Does it have like a tagline? It'll boost your ego too. Well, I think it, well, it's an electric lawnmower. It's a 56 volt cordless with a big battery, and it rechar- the battery recharges in like 30 minutes, and all this kind of stuff. So, and it's got a whole cordless thing, so you can just pop out the battery and pop it into the weed eater, pop it out, pop it into the blower, oh, cool. yeah. so on and so forth. So, um, because you don't have to winterize, which in Houston really isn't a problem, but I mean it's still nice to know that you don't have to deal with it. The other nice thing about it is that it's got vertical storage on it. So it takes up a lot less space. And um, yeah, so I got to deal with that. But it, it, so I'm supposing it, it's, it's meant to be electric go or something, but then, you know, E go. And I don't know, the way it looks, I just want to spray paint an L right in front of it so that I could have a Lego lawnmower instead. Well, I guess your daughters have to start, you know, doing some yard work sometime. So why not start with an eco friendly lawn equipment? Heck yeah. Yeah. I mowed the lawn starting at seven years old. Wow. I mowed my lawn on my eighth birthday. That's terrible. No, it was great. That's when I also grew my first pubic hair. Also, same day. It was kind of like my my manhood just patted me on the back. You're you're getting there, son. Here's a treat. Pink. Alright. Just floating in the in the breeze. In the <laughs> May breeze. Awesome. Awesome. With that. Shall we go to the news? We shall. <laughs> All right. Oh, and uh, just as a heads up, no emails this week. Look, I was responsible. I checked. See, I check. We don't get them. I don't check. We get them. I'm not sure what to tell you. So no emails this week. Uh, then I guess with nothing else to do, let's do it. Here we go, folks. It is the news. <laughs> So, starting up with something that uh, we wanted to get to last week, but uh, basically ran out of time for. But it was something that Tim and I definitely were both excited about. And so we both had varying articles about it. From the Hollywood Reporter, uh, I guess HollywoodReporter.com, by way of Aaron Couch. George Miller's abandoned Justice League movie, Getting Documentary, the Fury Road director's film, had been planned for 2009. 
In the lore of comic book movies that never made it out of development, director George Miller's planned Justice League is among the most buzzed about. After Miller's Mad Max Fury Road became a commercial and critical hit, curiosity about his Justice League film has been renewed. Titled Justice League Mortal, the film had a cast ready to go with stars including Army Hammer as Batman, DJ Cotrona as Superman, Megan Gale as Wonder Woman, and Adam Brody, the Flash, on board. Warner Brothers announced the film in 2000 for a 2009 release before deciding to pull the plug. Now, a documentary is being planned to shed light on what the film would have been like. Tentatively titled Miller's Justice League Mortal, the documentary comes from Australian director Ryan Unicomb and producers Aaron Cater and Stephen Caldwell, who announced the project via Inside Film. They have investors on board and may turn to crowdfunding as well, which would make it follow in the footsteps of The Death of Superman Lives, the documentary about Tim Burton's aborted Superman movie. Quote, we wanted to get the story out there to help us gauge interest, end quote, Unicomb told the site. Quote, I have always been fascinated with the project, which would be in the same vein as 2013's uh, Jodorowsky's Dune and this year's The Death of Superman Lives. What happened? End quote. Um, it goes on to discuss briefly about how Justice League Mortal came about roughly at the same time as Nolan was doing the Batman films. And then, of course, 2008, um, Writer strike, so um, there. Those are typically listed as the things that kind of were the death knell for the movie, as it were. But uh, Tim also had noted, I saw he had posted up on uh, Facebook or something like that, that there were. Um, there's also artwork out there, concept art and stuff is available to be viewed as well. That would hopefully go into this documentary. But what do you think, Tim? I think this is really cool and would be very excited to find out uh, more about this movie. Yeah, I, I agree, uh, especially after looking at some of the concept artwork. I mean, talk about cool colors. It looks like it looked like it was going to have stunning stellar vision and scope. So, I mean, especially if you're a big fan of Miller's Mad Max Fury Road that just came out. I I mean, just think about the passion that went into the making of that film. He would have put as much as he did in that movie, into the Justice League movie. So it was something that he was very passionate about. And unfortunately, he's probably never going to do a superhero movie because he invested so much into Justice League Immortal and it just kind of fell out from underneath him. So I'm excited for the documentary. I think there's going to be some interesting material there. Awesome, awesome. What do you got for us, sir? All right, so I usually don't like talking about this sort of shit, but... Because it's you, Bull, and because of what he had said or has been saying, posting his own videos onto YouTube, which is stupid, I'm sorry, but I have to bring it up because I know people know his name, and usually they're like, oh, you know, oh, he's a silly guy. He makes those really silly movies. Nobody ever really watches them. You know, they really have no opinion, uh, you know, of him. This guy is a madman. He's a crazy-ass motherfucker, and people just need to stop acknowledging him. And this is why. This is from TheHollywoodReporter.com. Director Yu Bull slams George Clooney, Brad Pitt, and crowdfunding. This is written by Scott Roxborough. German director Yu Bull, known by his fans and detractors as the King of Trash, 
has posted a pair of expletive-laden rants targeting George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Robert Downey Jr., and Hollywood in general as his new film struggles on the crowdfunding site Kickstarter. And not just Kickstarter, but Indiegogo as well. I mean, he failed at trying to get this movie made three times now. Bo posted two rants to YouTube on Sunday, one slamming fans who didn't support his new movie, Rampage 3, No Mercy, the other targeting Hollywood. In the first, Bull was blunt. Quote, Basically, my message is, fuck you, end quote, said the director of Postal and Blood Rain. Bull had launched a crowdfunding campaign to raise $55,000 towards the making of Rampage 3, based on the popular first-person shooter video game. Bull wrote and directed the first two Rampage movies, which starred Brandon Fletcher. But with just three days to go in the campaign, Rampage 3 has raised just $25,000 on Kickstarter. An earlier attempt to fund the film via Indiegogo, another crowdfunding site, raised just over $5,000 of an $80,000 goal. Bull previously failed in a crowdfunding attempt to bankroll another video game sequel, Postal 2. Quote, I want to make Rampage 3 because it is an important movie, but it seems you're easier giving $600,000 if you make a movie about some retarded wizard in a forest or for another whatever Marvel's Avengers bullshit dirt, end quote. Bold told those who didn't back him, quote, so goodbye and goodbye Hollywood, end quote. Quote, for me, crowdfunding is absolutely dead, end quote, he added, noting that he already has, quote, enough money to play golf till I'm dead, end quote. In a separate post on Sunday, Bull held up a recent issue of The Hollywood Reporter to the camera, castigating film fans for wanting to emulate stars like Clooney, Brad Pitt, and Angelina Jolie, who the director said are, quote, laughing at you, end quote, for paying to see their movies. Bull went after Clooney in particular for backing 2007 documentary Sand and Sorrow about the Darfur genocide, while ignoring his 2009 feature Attack on Darfur. Bull blasted those who invested in Hollywood, warning investors that they would never see any return for Hollywood films. Quote, Hollywood sucks. The capital from the rich people from around the world, they suck all the capital in so that they can fucking drive a Ferrari, end quote, he said. He singled out Hollywood's newest investors in countries like China and India. Quote, I'll find another Chinese, Albania idiot, who wants to see his fucking yacht in cans to fuck supermodels. That is the movie business, end quote. Bull's rants are legendary. As part of the publicity campaign for Postal, the director lashed out at Michael Bay and Eli Roth, calling them, quote, fucking retards, end quote, and even challenged Bay to a boxing match, quote, to prove who is the better director, end quote. <laughs> Bay declined, but it wasn't the first time Bull has tried to settle scores in the ring. In 2006, he challenged movie critics who had trashed his films to fight him back-to-back -back in a match billed as, quote, Raging Bull, end quote. He also invited directors Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery to box him, but both declined. Bull received a rare Worst Career Achievement Award from the Golden Raspberry Awards in 2009. An online petition calling for him to retire from filmmaking garnered more than 350,000 signatures on petition.now. End all quotes.
to be fair, he does raise, I mean, he raises one interesting point, you know, that I can say, okay, well, I see where he's coming from, but it's all in the phrasing and why he is doing it. I've never seen a bigger butthurt German since Adolf fucking Hitler. No joke! I mean, especially one that has put themselves out here like this, and it is blatantly, obviously stupid. This guy makes shitty movies, and he wonders why people aren't backing him. Nobody cares about getting an autograph from this guy. Nobody cares about appearing in his movies. People watch his movies. I'm sure there are some people, maybe people in Germany or, you know, wherever, that watch him because they enjoy his film. They think it's fluff. And that's totally okay. But there are a huge number of people that watch his movies for a laugh because they are bad. At least Nicolas Cage makes a goddamn good movie every couple years. But in between that, he has a lot of stinkers. But at least he tries every so often. Yes, U-Bull has one movie that he is credited towards, that he has made, that is actually a decent movie about Auschwitz, and, and I guess the, the Darfur movie as well. So why is he bitching? Why? I implore all of you, not all of you, but some of you that can actually handle it, look up his YouTube videos. One of them is called Fucky Wall. And the other one is called June Kickstarter. And just listen to him. This guy is crazy. And nobody support him. Nobody. Please don't. Yeah, Matt, what do you think? Do you have any opinion towards this asshole? <laughs> Actually, all I want, uh, like, when you when you had said, when you quoted him as saying, well, that's it, you know, fuck all you and fuck Hollywood, goodbye kind of thing. Uh, when you'd quoted him saying that stuff, all I wanted to jump in was say, do you promise? Do you, you never coming back? You promise? So I mean, I don't yeah. understand why he was like bitching about Hollywood when he's actively trying to stay out of Hollywood. That, that's, I don't, it, it doesn't make any sense. Psychotic. Psychotic. That's it. Well, speaking of psychotic things, <laughs> here's a psychotic thing. This is from uh, Reuters.com by way of uh, Dana Beth Solomon. FIFA film United Passions makes muted debut in Los Angeles. At the first screening of the of a FIFA-funded film United Passions in Los Angeles, the week after US prosecutors charged several officials of World Soccer's governing body, only two people attended. <laughs> One out of curiosity, the other as a soccer fan. The 2014 French film starring British actor Tim Roth as FIFA president Sepp Blatter had an estimated budget of 24 million euros, that's $27 million, of which FIFA officials have acknowledged providing about 20 million euros. The film, which explores the 111-year history of FIFA, attempts to show the organization as a force for good while also hinting at corruption and embezzlement without delving into it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's see here. Let me just get to, um, <laughs> the opening Friday on demand in the United States and in limited theaters coincides with a scandal rocking world soccer after prosecutors unsealed indictments on May 27th in a case involving $150 million in bribes over 24 years. Blatter announced on Tuesday that he would resign. Francisco Carrillo, 62, said he came to the midday showing of United Passions at North Hollywood's Lamel, I'm sorry, Lamel Theater? L-A-E-M-M-L-E? 
Theater. Uh, the only one in. I'm sorry. Lemiel. Lemiel. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess I had it right the first time. Uh, the only one in Los Angeles showing the film because he is a fan of soccer popular in his home country, Mexico. Quote, I like the World Cup and the rules of soccer, end quote, he said. Carrillo said he had followed the scandal but just but came just for, quote, entertainment, end quote. Freelance sports writer Alex Goot, 31, said he was curious to gauge interest in the film. Quote, even before the scandals and indictments unfolded, I wondered, who is the audience for this story? Even dedicated fans aren't going to care about FIFA in the boardroom, end quote, he said. Um... The last thing I'll read is this last sentence. U.S. distributor Screen Media Films did not respond to requests for comment on why it chose to release the film at this time. What do you think, Tim? Uh, I don't know if you're following the FIFA scandal at all, but... Oh, yes. Do do you think that uh, this bodes well for the film when a whopping two people show up? No, that is definitely (laughs) bad. I mean, poor Tim Roth. (laughs) Yeah, Boy, he must have been a he must be a really big soccer fan, or just really need the money. It's entirely possible he could be both. Yeah. What else you got, sir? Alrighty, actually, this is one that I didn't mention to Matt earlier. From Variety.com, James Bond distribution rights coming up for grabs. That's right, my company Sony Pictures might not have the distribution rights to James Bond after the release of Spectre. And it says this, written by Britt Lang, James Bond may bring his license to kill to another Hollywood studio after a lucrative stint at Sony Pictures, sources tell Variety. The November 6th release of Spectre will mark the end of a multi-picture pact between Metro-Golden-Mare and Sony that has encompassed Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, and Skyfall, the highest-grossing 007 film in franchise history. However... Insiders speculate that the close relationship between MGM chief Gary Barber and Warner Brothers CEO Kevin Tushihara, that's right, Tushihara, could result in the super spy shifting addresses to the Burbank studio. MGM and Warner Brothers have partnered on several films, including the Hobbit trilogy, the May box office dud Hot Pursuit, and the upcoming Rocky Balboa spinoff Creed. In an exclusive sit-down interview, newly minted Sony Pictures Entertainment... Motion Picture Group Chairman Tom Rothman acknowledged that the fight for the Bond rights will be fierce. Quote, The reality is that Sony's had a fantastic run with the Bonds. Sure, we're going to compete for the rights, but let's be honest, so is everybody in the business. End quote. Sony extended its contract to co-finance and distribute Spectre and Skyfall in 2011, throwing in the right for MGM to invest on Sony's remake of Total Recall, 21 Jump Street, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. End all quotes there. So, obviously it'll be sad to see Sony leave. See Sony leave. To see Bond leave Sony. Um, but I guess in some way, change is good. You never know. I hope uh, I hope he stays. It'd be so cool. But uh, it, it's funny how how big of a franchise and how big of a thing the, the Bond franchise is to where they can do this sort of thing. You know, MGM can uh, can jump from studio to studio to studio. So it's the business side of this is just absolutely fascinating, just knowing how much power a film franchise can have. I mean, it's not just Marvel. It's also James Bond. So, yay. Or boo. <laughs> Well, you know, well, I guess depending on how you look at it, whatever floats your boat. 
Uh, let's see here. Last up from me, uh, from HollywoodReporter.com, by way of Rebecca Ford. Disney not moving forward with Tron 3. This was an exclusive for them. The third installment was to be directed by Joseph Kaczynski and would see the return of stars Olivia Wilde and Garrett Hedlund. Tron 3 won't be coming to a theater near you. Disney has chosen not to move forward with a third installment in the sci-fi series, sources say. While sources say the project was never officially greenlit, earlier this year it seemed that things were moving ahead with Tron Legacy Helmer Joseph Kaczynski returning to direct and stars Olivia Wilde and Garrett Hedlund reprising their roles. Prep had been started on the third film and production was looking to begin this fall, likely in Vancouver, British Columbia. Disney had been interested in adding Jared Leto to the cast, but an offer and negotiations never commenced um yeah this is really kind of sad for me uh, it closes the article by saying disney's live action tentpole calendar is pretty full for the next few years with live action versions of many of its animated classics in the works including the jungle book alice through the looking glass and beauty and the beast i think i would rather have some Tron action via that. But, I mean, as I had reported a couple months back, Olivia Wilde had actually seen the script, and that's how they were getting some information about that. There was an actual script in play. There was location shooting, you know, in play. And then it looks like the axe has officially fallen, which is a bummer. I don't know. uh, Tim, were you a fan of Tron Legacy or...? I honestly thought that the only thing that Tron Legacy had going for it was the effects and the look of it. And because it was Tron, uh, I could take or leave the the story elements. But I think a sequel, I mean, a really good sequel would have been pretty cool. If they did something a little different, obviously. Sure, sure. Well, right on, man. All right. Well, that was, as I said, the end of the news for me. So bring us home on the news, sir. See, I will wrap up with some technical news, I guess, from the hollyreporter.com Cinegear Expo Hateful 8 70mm test footage dazzles. That's right, and that is the Hateful 8 as in Quentin Tarantino's upcoming western, The Hateful 8. Quentin Tarantino, quote, really wants to get people back into theaters, end quote. Test footage from Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight, photographed by two-time Oscar winner Robert Richardson, received enthusiastic applause when it was projected in 70mm anamorphic film for a full house at the Paramount Theater on Saturday at Cinegear Expo, which is being held on the Paramount lot. Quote, He really wants to get people back into theaters. You're not going to get this at home. He did something really great to bring that experience back, in quote, Panavision's VP of Optical Engineering, Dan Saseki, said of Tarantino, a vocal film proponent, quote, Quinn wanted an epic western, something that hasn't been seen in forever, that would really wow people. When he saw the test, he started bouncing in his seat, end quote. The test footage included actor close-ups, as well as interiors and a range of exteriors at different times of day and with varying lighting conditions. While not confirmed by Panavision during the session, word on the street is that the plans are underway to equip roughly 50 U.S. theaters to show the movie in 70mm. Work is also being done to find the most precise way to create a digital version for digital cinema release. Currently in post, Hateful Eight has lens on 65mm negative and is believed to be the first production since 1966, Kartum, 
to use Ultra Panavision 70 anamorphic lenses. Saseki related that Richardson came to Panavision looking for something different, and when he saw the look created by these lenses, he said, quote, This is it! End quote. This led to an enormous effort at Panavision, which reworked 19 of these classic lenses, for the production in just a few months. End all quotes there. Also, and it says here that uh, it's unconfirmed, but possibly these same lenses will be used by cinematographer Greg Frazier for the upcoming Star Wars anthology film Rogue One about the X-Wings, which that would be awesome. Uh, But yeah, this is great technology. Um, I like the idea of making the movie-going experience more of an event. Maybe people will actually start caring about the movies in a more passionate way, especially younger people, especially younger people. I also wanted to mention that it is the birthday, the 50th birthday of Super 8 Film. And via IndieWire.com here, it's been half a century since Kodak produced Super 8mm revolutionizing amateur filmmaking. Um, I'm just going to read this quick paragraph here. 50 years ago, Kodak introduced Super 8mm, though Cine Kodak 8 was introduced as early as 1932, Standard 8mm had a number of major issues that made it difficult for amateurs to handle. But the new Super 8 format solved some of these problems. With the invention of the 50-foot cartridge in 1965, filmmaking became much more accessible to the masses. And many of today's most successful filmmakers, including Steven Spielberg, J.J. Abrams, David Fincher, Tim Burton, Peter Jackson, Richard Linkletter, and Christopher Nolan, started out shooting Super 8 movies. The original Super 8 film was silent, but Kodak released a sound version in 1973. Over the years, these filmmakers and others have used Super 8 on films such as Natural Born Killers, The Fighter, and Argo. Most recently, the documentary Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, was shot primarily on Super 8. Though it was primarily seen as an amateur's camera, it has become a popular choice for special effects and for pros who wanted to get the authentic Super 8 look. End all quotes there. Uh, Check this article out. It's on IndieWire.com if you're interested. It is entitled, Happy Birthday, Super 8 Film, written by Paula Bernstein. And yeah, Super 8's a beautiful thing. It's so cool. I mean, talk about uh, growing up in the 60s, 70s, uh, even in the 80s, you know, owning a Super 8 camera like my grandfather did. Like just a lot of people I know out here, you know, you have to really use your imagination to tell a story without sound, you know. And so you can also play around with the stop motion setting as well. So you can make these really cool stop motion amateur films as well. So it's really cool. Yay, Super 8. And yay, Hateful 8. All right, and that is going to then bring us to... Furry Squared! All right, so this week's Three Squared, I think, is going to be a very fun Three Squared... Uh, this one is that we're doing movies. We always talk about movies. Oh, sorry, I'm a little tired. 
songs that make you think of movies instead of the song. So I had given an example. And, and again, we're not talking about music that was designed for the movie. So I'm not thinking, we're not talking about Hungry Eyes, you know, from Dirty Dancing. We're thinking more along the lines of Unchained Melody uh, for Ghost, that kind of a thing. All right. So what got me thinking about this and wanted to bring it up with Tim is I am a big fan of Neil Diamond. He is an amazing songwriter and his career clearly speaks for itself. And I have one of the uh, one of the albums I have is his master's collection. And so I was listening to it uh, uh, at work last week. And then, of course, Girl, You'll Be a Woman soon comes on. And I'm like, man. How, I mean, it's not even this version, but because I mean, it's Urge Overkill who does it. But every time I hear this song, I don't ever think of anything but Uma Thurman in Pulp Fiction in that wonderful scene. And so that was kind of what led me to this, uh, to, to suggesting this as a three squared. So naturally, my first choice is Urge Overkill's version of Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon in Pulp Fiction. And this, of course, is just an outstanding film and one of the best films in the history of cinema. Definitely groundbreaking in so many ways, but also because of Quentin Tarantino's attention to detail, especially in the soundtrack. This is just a very well-placed song. And the great melodic tones that Urge Overkill brings to it is so different than the way that Neil Diamond does it. Now, that's not to say that both... Ver- no, there are definitely great things to say about both versions. and no, not There's not one that's necessarily inherently better than the other. But I really like the the smoother tones that come from Urge Overkill's version. And again, the way it sets up the scene for Uma Thurman and the character is also just amazing. And I just can't think of, I just can't think of anything else other than that movie when I, when I hear it. Next up for me is Land of a Thousand Dances, Wilson Pickett. Now, this has been recorded by a few different artists, and Wilson Pickett actually um, had recorded it a second time in 1988, and he actually did a special recording of this song specifically for the film The Great Outdoors, which is, of course, John Candy and Dan Aykroyd as brothers on a... um, (laughs) Is Dan Aykroyd playing John Candy's brother intruding on his holiday... Um, when he's trying to recreate that ultimate bonding experience in the great outdoors. And then, of course, shenanigans ensue, including the ultimate Big Bear, Big Bear. Yes, all right, we'll make you a big... No, Big Bear, Big Bear, chase me. Yeah, that's that's great. I love that. Love that movie. But this this particular song actually plays over the credits. However, it is still just a fantastic song and definitely embodies all of the characters and the fun that it's supposed to have um, and also the breakneck speed that it has in, uh, in its finale and just the overall zaniness 
that is the great outdoors. And every time I hear this song, regardless of the time, regardless of which version it is, I'm always thinking of Dan Aykroyd acting a fool in the credits of The Great Outdoors, which then, of course, reminds me of how wonderful The Great Outdoors actually is. And if you haven't seen this movie, oh my God, you've got to go and watch this movie. Pause the pause the podcast and go sit down and watch the movie. Come back and, you know, be thinking about that. Na, 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 na. Yeah, it's great. All right. So last but not least for me, though, is a movie that is definitely a cult classic and made a ton of money at the box office and, however, is one of those movies that is universally 50-50. You either absolutely love it or you absolutely hate it. And it is, of course, Napoleon Dynamite. And anyone who has seen this film, regardless of whether or not they love it or hate it, most everyone has an indelible image in their mind of the Vote for Pedro dance that Napoleon does at the end of the movie. And that song that is playing is Canned Heat by Jamiroquai. And it was it's just something that I have enjoyed Jamiroquai in, in his amazing funk jazz tones since, of course, the virtual insanity that came out in 94. But he is just an amazing artist overall. And this is something else that really goes to show just how... Um, how great into funk and into jazz he really is by pulling out this amazing, amazing song. And while the imagery that is generated by this song is definitely 100% Napoleon Dynamite, it still leaves you in a good, bouncy, happy-go-lucky mood listening to this song. So even if you're not a big fan of the movie, chances are you are definitely a fan of this song. And that is why I had to pick it. My wife literally went out of her way. She never does this. Uh, she actually went at the time and bought the stupid ringtone. She never, before or since, she's never done it. That's the only time. Canned Heat, Jamiroquai. So, again, my movie picks or my song picks that remind me of movies are Urge Overkill's Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon from Pulp Fiction. The 1988 version of Wilson Pickett's Land of a Thousand Dances. For the great outdoors, and of course, Jamiroquai's Canned Heat from Napoleon Dynamite. All right, Tim, what do you got, sir? I was actually really excited to do this three squared because I love when a, when music is used in a movie perfectly. You know, like when it evokes an emotion where it's not just like, oh, oh, that's interesting they use that song. Because you watch like certain movies like Cinderella, for example... A movie like Cinderella, uh, the, the new one that came out, and then like the credits roll, and then they have like a very poppy song that plays during the credits that totally clashes with the movie that you just watched. I hate it when that happens. So I, I love it when you have a great filmmaker who thinks about the music and uses that music to invoke or evoke a, a, a tone, you know, a feeling that connects the audience more so with what is happening or what had happened on the screen or to the characters or throughout the story. And I'm going to go in order with this list. I mean, this isn't my definitive list, but I wanted to pick something that in a way represented three decades. 
one the 80s, the other the 90s, and then finally the 2000s. Um, the first one being... Oh, yeah. By Yellow. That's Y-E-L-L-O. The song was released in 1985. You might recognize this song from two movies. The first movie in 1987, and it was the Michael J. Fox film, The Secret of My Success. But it is most popularly known for it being in Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 1986. And this is what really made the this song popular. Because for one thing, the band's not from America. The song pops up throughout the movie. And honestly, it doesn't date the movie, though the song is very 80s. It definitely fits with the movie because the movie itself is very lighthearted with a little bite to it, especially there, uh, there at the end. But it has like the zippiness to it and this re- just this all-around playful ridiculousness that just somehow the molding of this movie with this song just worked perfectly, especially when the song was peppered or, or is peppered throughout the movie. And it's just great. And you know what I'm talking about, the... That one. It's fun, it's exciting, and it totally works with that movie. In the second song that makes me think of a movie every time I hear it, it's beautiful. I mean, this helped make this movie perfect because of the ending. And this is the Faces song, Ronnie Lane and Ron Wood from of the Faces song. Um, the song is Ooh La La, and it was used in the, the 1998 film Rushmore, and the song Ooh La La came out in 1973. Rushmore is one of, well, it was the follow-up to Bottle Rocket for Wes Anderson, so this was his second big movie, and it's absolutely charming. If you've never seen it, you have to check it out. There's, you know, usually his movies have great music. This is no exception whatsoever. From beginning to end, the movie is charming, and uh, for those of you who are familiar with the use of Ooh La La in the film at the end. It takes place at the theater after Jason Jason Schwartzman's character puts on that ridiculous Vietnam War play. And he thinks he just... Well, he doesn't really think, but throughout the entire movie, he's trying to get with this teacher. And he finally comes to the conclusion and the realization that no matter how much he's trying to impress her and trying to get with her, it's just not going to happen. And so, because of his character, who's just very, not necessarily carefree, but easygoing, and he can adapt quickly to the next thing, this is just the perfect ending, because you have everybody that you cared about in the movie, all together in the middle of the dance floor, Jason Swartzman nods to the DJ, he flips over a record, and it's the song. And as the song begins, Jason Swartzman, Swartzman just nods his head to the opening, And then he goes out into the crowd and everybody's dancing and then he starts dancing with the teacher and everybody's dancing around. And then suddenly everybody goes into slow motion. And it's perfect right at the right moment when the song really doesn't necessarily kick in, but right when you start to feel it. You know, you feel the emotion that the song throws at you. The movie just syncs up with it beautifully. This movie came out, I was like 8, 9, 10 years old. And this is about when I really started getting into music and film. And I studied this movie, along with all these other movies, but mainly this one, uh, with how it used music to bring out an emotion with an audience. You know, how to connect the audience with the film via its soundtrack. And what's great about 
Wes Anderson movies is that, yeah, they have great soundtracks, but the soundtrack never overpowers what you see on screen. It doesn't upstage it. And this is a good example. It just kind of moves in right underneath you, and it's like the perfect closing to a movie. To It's my favorite out of any Wes Anderson movie, so I highly recommend the movie, but better yet, I highly recommend the song because I couldn't imagine this ending any other way. It was Ooh La La from The Faces, or By The Faces, that is uh, Ronnie Lane and Ron Wood, who, you know, Ron Wood from The Rolling Stones, uh, and it was used in Rushmore. Finally, from David Fincher's 2007 masterpiece, Zodiac, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo. This is my all-time favorite. I'm excited to bring this up because I was in awe when I saw this movie and I just heard the beginning of Donovan's Hurdy Gurdy Men, the, you know, the humming at the beginning of the song and the movie just kicks right in and it goes right into the killing. And then at the end of the movie, once you like, there's a big realization where the guy from the first scene admits that the one guy that, that everybody thought was the killer turns out he was the killer, but the guy has already skipped town, you know, but it's that realization that God, he was right under their nose the entire time and he's gone. There's nothing nobody can do about it. And that song just kicks in and that's the end of the movie. It is brilliant it is beautiful and it's mainly because of donovan's uh performance of the song it's very i guess there's something a little unsettling you know moody and even sinister to the song within the context of the film it's brilliant i'm sure you know what song i'm talking about i hope you do at least but it's the you know he's humming and then he's like he kind of his voice kind of you know is kind of like this and he's like you know Thrown like a star in my vast asleep, I opened my eyes to take a peep, to find that I was by the sea, gazing with tranquility. Twas when the hurdy-gurdy man came singing songs of love. I can't do it with shit. He sings the hurdy-gurdy man, about the hurdy-gurdy man, as if he's the monster that's living underneath your bed. You know, he's the boogeyman. And the Zodiac was pretty much the boogeyman. He became, the Zodiac is a serial killer that they never caught. And at the end of the movie, well, you find out that the guy that they thought, you know, was the Zodiac actually was. And they don't have him anymore. He's still out there. And again, hurdy-gurdy man comes back on, and it is a beautiful ending. I love it. Thank you, David Fincher. Ah. <sighs> I love it. I love music and movies. It's beautiful. So my three were by Yellow, released in 1985. It was used in Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 1986. My second one was Ooh La La by The Faces. It was released in 1973, but it was used in Rushmore in 1998. And finally, Hurdy Gurdy Man by Donovan. It originally came out in 1968, but it was used in Zodiac, which came out in 2007. Check them out. Awesome. All right. Well, that is that was definitely one of the most fun three squares I can really remember. So, and I thought it was pretty interesting. We both ended up doing movies from the eighties, nineties, and the two thousands. So that was kind of that was kind of providence at work, if you will. Anyway, all right. Well, next time 
our bonus segment is going to be Did It Age Well? And we're picking up Mortal Kombat the movie back from 1995. That's right. Fun times. I can't wait to see this movie. <laughs> now remember, it's, it's gonna the be first bad. one. It's going to be horrible. I know, but apparently the second one, I never got around to seeing it. It's Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Apparently that one is just, oh dear God, fucking terrible. Yeah. But the first Mortal Kombat, I enjoyed it. I was really impressed. It was the first time I'd ever seen a video game When it came out, you're saying you enjoyed it when it came out? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. 20 years ago. Why did Um, you? It was the first time that I'd ever seen a video game adaptation that worked. Uh, You know, so Yeah. Cool. I'm excited to see just exactly how far down the tubes it's gone, though. <laughs> All right, so that is going to close it off there and bring us to the movies. <laughs> All right, we had a triple shot of horror for you this week. We've got Insidious Chapter 3, The Ba-Ba-Ba-Ba-Duk-Duk-Duk, and Zombievers. So, where do you want to start, Tim? How about we uh, we get Zombievers out of the way? Okay. Uh, The movie that makes Wolf Cop look all right. Are you kidding? It makes Wolfcock look like a cinematic masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. Okay. Um, all right. It's a, supposed to be a horror comedy film. And um, the fact that they try to call this comedy is in and of itself horror. Outside of that, it's neither scary nor funny. Um, these... College co-eds go out for a weekend at a cabin alone um, to have uh, some time away from the guys, which even though it was supposed to originally be a um, a couple's weekend with the three girls and the three boyfriends, one of the boyfriends cheated, so it was supposed to be just the girls. Um, in the meantime, Toxic Waste has created um, Zombie Beavers, hence the title, Zombievers, and um, yeah, what what horrid things could occur? Um, this is definitely a waste of a movie. It it seriously is. the The one cool thing that I thought it was gonna do minor plot spoiler if you decide to that you can stomach this entire thing is you know how like back in Scream when they established the rules of horror and if you break them you're going to die and all that kind of stuff and they you know really kind of turned it on its head well the one girl who's just the patent evil bitch slut who's showing her tits off at any every possible uh I was really impressed cuz I was like wow she's going to make it that's actually the only thing that was worth watching and then nope they ruined that too so um yeah, I, the movie's not funny. The acting is completely subpar. Um, it, it makes no sense. It's not even good as satire. It's not even good as being self-aware. Uh, the outtakes are probably the best thing. And thankfully, they last like two minutes. 
So zero stars for me. Whoa, is that zero stars or zero fucking stars? Nah, not zero fucking stars. Just zero stars. Okay. It's my first zero star movie of the year, though. Uh, congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Thank- no, thank you for picking it. Thanks. Well, I mean, thank to be you. fair... Whenever we talked no, about to this be movie fair. about a you year ago. You inflicted this upon me. That's not being fair. <laughs> hey, you, you expressed interest in it a year ago when uh, I had you listen to the trailer <laughs> on the show. You said, and I quote, we got to see this. So oh, well, we did. I take it all back. <laughs> all right, what do you got, sir? All right, well, I definitely like this movie I, uh, a, more, a little more than you did. I should say I hated it a little less than you did. It's the movie. I don't. I couldn't tell what the hell was this movie trying to be. Was it trying to be a cult movie? Was it trying to be a self-aware, over-the-top, goofy movie? It just like when it, the movie felt like it was trying to be like kind of like a cult, actually a decent, entertaining movie at like moments of it. I thought, okay, well, you know, it's not that bad. Maybe it's going somewhere. You know, it has little bitty things kind of peppered through it. And then it turns around and somebody says something really stupid or something really dumb happens. Bad acting happens. Somebody throws out a very outdated joke and it's just stupid. This movie has already been made. I I don't understand. Like, why do we need to do another goofy movie about kids staying in a cabin and evil awaits for them outside? Basically them just running around trying to avoid zombievers that really don't show up until the last, it felt like it was like the last 25 minutes of the movie, you know, maybe 30 minutes of the movie, but the movie was only like 70 something minutes long. If that, I think, well, maybe it was 80. I can't remember, but the, uh, the money that was spent for the theme song. Yes. At the end of the movie, there is a zombie verse theme song and it's of higher quality than what one would expect. So the money that was used on the theme song and the money that was used on the opening title sequence, and yes, because apparently every horror movie has to have, even these campy, stupid ones that I don't understand why, like, did they have an ego? They must have a big ego by thinking like, ooh, our movie deserves a cool graphic animated, not graphic, but an animated title sequence. I mean, the, the money that was spent towards that that went towards that in the theme song should have gone towards talent time energy (laughs) or even the actual production itself because god i it it was it was annoying um i highly suggest that uh, if you guys like to take part in the herbal relaxations uh, or, or herbal libations, I would suggest you indulge heavily, as well as a beer or liquor, you know, or, or even or even opium. You know, opium might help because you might actually forget what that you know that you even watched the movie and think, oh well, you know, I see that when I, it recommended it to me, it said I'd rate it one star. Well, I might as well not rate it, or not even finish watching it, or not even watch it. Period. So just when it comes down to it, the movie isn't fun. Which it should be. It's called Zombievers. It's a ridiculous premise. It could have been something that was smart. It could have been entertaining. Other than just an over-the-top parody of the zombie genre. And not incorporating their own spin. 
uh, you know, or, or their own original ideas. They're just ripping shit off that you've seen over and over again. So Matt gave this one zero. I'm, <laughs> oh man, I, I'm actually going to give this movie one star. <laughs> one whole star. One. A star. A star for effort. All right, so I assume we're going to move from there to Insidious Chapter 3. Uh, we can. I, I figured since we're, we have a potential uh, knockdown drag out, I figured you'd want to save it for last. But sure. we yeah, can do we it can now if Insidious you want. We, we, we could do it now if you okay. want. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> if we hate each other by the end of it, we'll get through Insidious 3 so fast. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. All right, so <laughs> let's do it. Let's get to it. Uh, the Baba Duke. All right. So 2014 Australian Canadian psychological horror film. It's written by written and directed by Jennifer Kent. Um, and basically it is a, about a woman and her son who are tormented by an evil entity. Um, a young lady by the name of Amelia who um, lost her husband um, in a car crash while he was taking her to the hospital to have her son or to have their son is basically kind of going nutso because her out of control six-year-old son at this point, uh, overly rambunctious and everything is causing her to lose sleep. And ultimately a weird children's book shows up and young miss, you know, young master Sam uh, believes in it, and then of course, who is this? Who is the who, who who is this person from the children's book? It is of course the Baba Duke, uh, or Baba Duke, however you want to say it. Um, this movie has a ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It also I want to say has something like eighty nine or nine something like that percent audience liked it. For me, for me. Um, having, having, I mean, within the first eight minutes, I had to stop the movie because I literally wanted the Baba Duke to be real and come to life and kill the fucking kid. He was so goddamn annoying and everybody has seen kids like this and I don't care what the sob story is. This is a woman who has been driven to the depths of insanity by sleep deprivation and has become a complete enabler of her child being a complete fucking little shit. And... Everybody around her can see it, and everybody was a, the problem. So, what we have here is a film that is a complete exercise in doing everything too well. You're like, but if everything's perfect, then why isn't the movie perfect? Ah ha ha! Ah, see, it wasn't that it was just enough of everything. It was a hundred and ten percent of everything. It was a hundred and ten percent of bullshit fucking kid that you want to smack it was 110 percent of mom sleep deprived going in nutso who has literally and now become an enabler of her child doing this it was 110 percent of 
perfect cinematography to set up and elaborate on every kind of color scheme to give you the exact edge that you needed to understand what is supposed to happen and what is supposed to unfold. It was 110% of art direction that furthered that, not just in color schemes, but in terms of dress and in terms of set decorations and everything else that you needed to understand exactly what it was. It was literally like kind of like trying to idiot-proof a pretty damn jump-scare-empty film. So well-executed, I hated it. I literally hated it because I'm sitting there going, could you please get to the end? Could you, could you just kill this kid? Or could the mom just turn into something and do something? Could, could we just have the Babadook come in and do what needs to be done? No, 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 no. We just got to wait. Let's draw it out for two fucking hours. That's what we need to do. Draw it out, draw it out, draw it out forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I'm sorry. It's not two hours. It's like an hour and a half, but it feels like two fucking hours. Again, oh, and perfect score. The score is there to set the mood and do it all. Oh my God. And it's everything. It's instead of a good balance, it's like everything was turned up to 11. Well, why not make 10 louder? No, 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 no. Turn it up to 11. And I just, and then of course, spoiler here, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I have to, spoiler, spoiler alert, for the next 10, 15 seconds. Then they fucking keep it as a goddamn pet and feed it worms? Because, you know, that makes sense, right? That's that's what I would think the Babadook would want to eat. Worms. Bull worms every day. Keeps the fucking demons away. What? What's that? So then it doesn't even end right. Uh, you know, so... Spoiler over. So people who want to allude to the way that grief runs your life and can control you, and the people who want to allude to excellent psychological thriller with not too many jump scares and stuff like that, your whole premise is flawed. And you, it's like the kid just is trying to be out of The Shining, and so was the mom. Uh, and it doesn't work. I, didn't, I was literally aching for this thing to be over. In less than 10 minutes of it starting. One star. One. And I and I realize that it's just me. Okay, I don't know if I understood it right, but it just sounded like you didn't like it because it was different. I mean, did you not like it because it didn't have jump scares? No, 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 no. I was very clear. <laughs> this is not because it didn't have jump scares. I like... I honestly, after having watched all these movies, I'm gonna, you know, let's just throw Zombievers out, okay? Um, Babadook in Insidious Chapter Three, um, without going into it yet too much, um, has shown me that what we need, what horror actually truly needs, is a a real Hitchcockian aspect to it. That's what it needs. Is where you never get the payoff. You don't need the payoff because the payoff is the release. The payoff is the jump scare. The payoff is, oh, what is this horrible thing? What really drives people up the wall and scares them to no end is the tension. It's the actual buildup. It's what is this that's happening? And again, Babadook does this very, very well. But it's so heavy on that that when you combine it with these characters who are written to the T, and you are done with all this art direction, to the nines, and you have this cinematography that is in your face, it's, it's almost like you have stopped <laughs> that doesn't caring. That any sense. 
What do you mean? It There's does. There's all it's this cinematography like, it, in your face. It exactly. Okay. The whole fucking house. Did you not notice the way that the cinematography was set so that the entire house was designed to be sparse? And then do you combine that so that you can see exactly what you need to see by shadow, light, and design from the art direction and the color palette of everything in the home? Okay? All of that stuff is designed, it's literally like dumbing it down to the point that they have to show you what you're supposed to be scared of. It's not about be people being intelligent anymore. It's almost like literally the audience is too stupid to figure this stuff out for themselves. I, so we have to like put, put it in a picture frame. I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I really like this movie a lot. Uh, I liked it because to me it felt like it wasn't just a horror movie. Uh, all the horror elements kind of took a back seat. It was a story about a mother and her son. Uh, the whole dealio is that the woman's husband died in a car wreck on the way to the hospital to deliver her son. The husband died. Yeah. And so th that's always caused a riff. This is taking place around the time the son is turning seven years old. So the wife, the woman, uh, the mother, I should say, hasn't really, has been trying to cope but not really coping with the death of her husband. And so already there are layers there. And that just provided a basis for a very strong character. And on top of that, you have the child. To me, he it reminded me of Asperger's in a way because the kid was super or is super smart. And he knows, he's aware of everything. But he can't really keep his mouth shut. He speaks his mind literally about everything. Genuinely a pretty nice, solid kid. And normally things like that, when you go into high concept story for something like a horror movie, it's difficult to pull off because normally you can't find the actors to pull it off, especially with a, uh, with a low budget movie such as this one. But they did. The actress, Essie Davis, played Amelia Vanek, the mother, and Noah Weissman played Samuel Vanek, the son. And just, just he was one of the best child actors, young child actors. I think he was six at the time they they were making this movie that I've ever seen. I mean, just the the roles he or the the emotion he had to pull off, the just the the, the sheer terror in acting. I mean, this was a kid that vowed at the beginning of the movie that he would take care of his mother if his mother would take care of him, would watch after him. They, he was there to watch after her. So you knew that they, they were going to pull the, a stupid you know, plot trick where the kid was going to go evil on the parent. No, it turned out it was kind of the other way around. Uh, minor spoiler alert with the rest of this review. And so it, it went down that route to where it was the mother coping with this inner struggle, you know, all this darkness within inside, the Babadook brought that out of her, you know? And so that just created crazy intense moments, just, just an intense film, an intense struggle between the mother and the son. It was the, and you know, you had the Babadook itself, which is the horror elements, but really the horror element, it was happening within the mother. I mean, is it, the son that she should be worrying so much about? Oh, he's not doing well at school. Oh, he's, 
he's building all these contraptions and whatnot. He could, you know, just all this stuff. When really she's the one that needs help. She's the one that is not stable. She's the one that has uh, has the issues. And uh, the director, Jennifer Kent, really, I mean, this is her first really known movie. On a side note, this is an Australian film. She did say, and I'm quoting her right here, she wanted to tell a story that explored the fear of going mad. She wanted to give a real perspective to the situation that the woman is is dealing with, you know, to all the darkness that is kind of eating her up inside. And she said this, the director, Jennifer Kent, in a interview via denofgeek.com, quote, Now, I'm not saying we all want to go and kill our kids, but a lot of women struggle, and it's a very taboo subject to say that motherhood is anything but a perfect experience for women, end quote. So with that, you kind of have an idea, and I think it was kind of obvious watching the movie myself, that you can tell that there is more to the film than it just being... Okay, well, the Babadook shows up, and he possesses, and the woman gets possessed, and then there, then that adds to the struggle between the mother and the son, and what's going to happen, and yeah, and then the, the ending happens, you know, in which I think when you realize the struggle, and you get into the struggle, and even if you, you know, buy the movie or buy what kind of story the movie is trying to tell, then maybe the ending will make... Not, I mean, I don't think really the ending makes all that much sense, but I was able to buy the ending much more than Matt, it didn't bother me as much because it was more like uh, like symbolism even for embracing the inner demon because the Babadook would take form of her dead husband where the dead husband, which, you know, we'll, you know, we'll talk about Insidious, I'm sure, because they did the same damn thing, where the dead husband said as the Babadook, bring me the sun and join me, you know, basically bring me the sun so I can kill the sun and then you kill yourself. Or actually, you kill the sun and then you kill yourself and you'll, you know, be with me and it'll be wonderful. But really, no, that's the Babadook trying to persuade her to basically commit a murder-suicide. So it's just interesting. There's there, there are these just great moments within the movie, again, brought on by excellent performances and beautiful storytelling. It's great because it's different from other horror films. There are no jump scares, but there is terror. There, I mean, it's just real life terror even. Yes, this is not a perfect movie, and I will be the first one to say, or probably the second after Matt, that this movie does hit a few speed bumps. And to me, the speed bumps happened whenever the Babadook would kind of appear like just like you know in in a blink of an eye he would appear you know it just kind of didn't flow with with what was happening before the movie now when there was kind of like a lead up to it it was all right and then when the Babadook would show up you know and I guess that could be attested to the super low budget and apparently they also use stop motion animation to bring the Babadook to life but to me those were speed bumps those were kind those were little setbacks that could have been flushed out a little bit more Yeah, and that's pretty much what I think about the movie. I give this one 4.5 out of 5. I highly recommend it. It's something different. There's definitely more of a story here and more of a soul, I guess, than your run-of-the-mill horror flicks, especially with Insidious Chapter 3, which we'll be covering next. So 4.5 out of 5 for me. Well, good for Tim. Okay. Smart Uh, ass. <laughs> well, oh, I mean, you know, you do that every uh, time. Oh, Tim likes well, yeah, something that you, I didn't like. But you go like. last. But you go last. Good 
for Tim. <sighs> um, okay, so Insidious Chapter 3. Uh, 2015 American Supernatural horror film. I literally went and watched the 7:30 of this movie tonight, so I am very fresh off seeing this film. This is a prequel, and this one is actually only produced by James Wan. Um, it's directed by Lee Wanell and from a screenplay also by Lee Wanell. Stars Dermot Mulrooney, Stephanie Scott, Angus Simpson, and then of course Lynn Shay. Um, this is a th- this is basically how Elsie or I'm sorry Elsie <laughs> Elise. It's Borden. What? Why are we doing Borden milk? All right. Anyway, um, this is how uh, Elise basically became, you know, super medium. And which is contradiction in terms, but we're spiritual medium. So, yeah. And it's got a lot of interesting um, ideas. Tim, Tim and I briefly discussed this beforehand. And Tim had, Tim had said about Insidious 2 that there were a lot of interesting ideas, but the execution of those ideas, it faltered on in quite a few places. Now, where, while I disagreed with him um, for the most part with Insidious Chapter 2, which it's, I mean, I, I enjoyed it more than he did, but it's definitely not like a perfect film or anything. Um, with Insidious Chapter 3, this is literally a movie that sets out to do nothing but... <sighs> Try to be as in your face as possible while maintaining the spirit of the franchise, as best as I can put it. And any time that it gains some traction, it's then immediately shut down by something as stupid as, you know, come at me, bitch. I mean, you know, and, and stupid stuff like that. Like, really? This is, you know, so this is how we do things now? Um, it's way too wishy-washy. Uh, the bad guy or the bad demon in this one uh, was, I don't know. It, it Lipstick face from the first Insidious is something that is so incredibly freaky and so ingrained into the social consciousness that has become the Insidious series that it's just too hard to top it. And instead of trying to top it, um, they should have just gone with something inherently more sinister. But no, they just tried to top it. Oh, and then, of course, we've got to throw in uh, the Black Widow woman or whatever. Um and it's it, it just keeps leading into stupid things that don't pay, that that actually undo the things that happened in Insidious Chapter One and Insidious Chapter Two. It it especially in terms of um, Elsie's. I did it again. Elise's character arc and story, in specifically in regards with the Bride in Black. 
And I don't. So I, and then of course I went to the movie theater and I had to go during the summer and I tried to do my best, but it was a seven thirty show, and so naturally there's a bunch of kids in there. And literally, I had, I, like, when I knew the scares were coming, because the movie has gotten very predictable, of course, the, the franchise, um, I'm literally covering my ears because there's girls screaming all around me. Um, I didn't enjoy this movie. I thought that there were some really cool, like, like what Tim had said with Insidious Chapter 2, I really thought that there were some cool ideas, but the execution was just completely all over the place, failed, and virtually undid the series by way of its own prequel. So... Two stars for me. I just didn't like it. Um, but it does have a few things f- going for it. And judging by the people in the theater, you'll probably get scared once or twice. Go ahead, Tim. Bring us home, sir. Okay, so Insidious Chapter 3. Uh, I'm just going to just read off my notes here. Uh, you, basically, you're watching actors acting. There are really There is no characters, no real characters or genuine performances whatsoever when you see Mulroney's in the movie well Mulroney is basically playing Mulroney acting like the dad in the movie the dialogue itself is just cheesy it's obvious single dad speak over the top super cliched you know the dad doesn't know how to cook the dad doesn't know how to shop but the daughter who's about to get possessed or start seeing demons. She's the one that she's the one that knows how to cook. She's the one that knows how to shop, and she's the one that t- looks after her brother. Stuff like that. It's 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 just kooky, you know. It's again, it's recycling the same crap over and over again. Jump scares are cheaper and more cliched than ever. Which, when the movie does try to take the time to build something up, everything just gets ruined. It goes to shit because somebody makes a comment. It turns out to be a really dumb jump scare or, you know, what it's building up to, you know, it just takes a drastic turn. It goes in a different direction that just doesn't make any sense. And every time they build up a scare, they're doing something completely stupid. Like there's an air vent where she has to stand at the top of her bed on the on the head on the headboard and she puts her ear against the air vent. And you know that something is going to happen. For one thing, no sane person wouldn't be doing that in the first place. You know, or the same thing where, like, the girl is, you know, her legs are in a cast. She's in a wheelchair. And she just got attacked. And Mulroney comes in, the dad comes in, looks across the window, and the camera follows him. And he sees a guy who jumped out of the window, looks like he's dead on the ground. Well, he comes back out. And for some stupid reason, the daughter lifts herself up. And basically puts her entire body out of the window. And the guy's there who grabs her by the head. You know, so it's just these stupid setups for these super cliched and expected jump scares. And what I really didn't like and what I didn't appreciate at all was how the movie just cheated you into uh, feeling some kind of emotion. You know, it cheated you into feeling the drama of the movie as if you actually cared about these characters enough to root for them or even cry for them. Believe it or not, there were people rooting for the characters on the screen and there were people crying because, oh, the mother is in the room. She gets to have one last conversation with her mother. Oh my God. God, it's not like we haven't seen this shit before. Even in Insidious 2, there was shit there. In any Bloomhouse movie, picture, whatever, there's stuff like this that happens in those movies as well. 
But when it really comes down to it, Lee Wanell wrote and produced uh, the other movies. He's directed other films as well. He directed Insidious Chapter 3. And I gotta say, I give Wanell props for uh, for good ideas. He, he just He's an idea man. He comes up with... These great setups, great scenes. He has a, he definitely has a look, you know, or he's actually copying James Wan's, the look of his films, but he definitely has a vision. Now, I just don't think he's the one that should try to execute that vision because I don't think he's all that great of a filmmaker. And ultimately, that's what hurt this film. He wrote it and he made it. Though, in a way, I didn't hate the movie. I give this one two out of five as well. Right on, right on. Okay, so next week we are going to be doing a triple shot at the movies. Um, No Netflix for us this week. We've got Jurassic World, Love and Mercy, and Spy. And I think that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can find them at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we, of course, are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also... Follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can climb aboard the Information Superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, Twitter if that is your thing. And, of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt that's saying, uh, <laughs> this is Matt saying thanks to Lynn Shea, I get to say this. I think the best advice I ever got about acting was from my dad, which was, if they don't buy the fish on the first toss, throw it back in the wagon and go to the second house. Which is like an old Jewish fishmonger story about how you become a successful fishmonger. And this is Tim, and we'll be talking to all you cinephiles again next week. again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.